Before we look to God's Word this morning, we want to take an opportunity just to recognize one of our staff members who will be retiring this week. And so I'm going to ask Mr. Steve. I didn't ask for his permission. I'm going to ask for forgiveness if uh, Steve would come up here and join me. This is Mr. Steve Carl. I've only been here as pastor for about five months, but this man's already become a, a very dear friend. He comes by the office several times throughout the week just to stop in and say hello, give me an update on things with him. We've had an awesome time talking about the Lord and the church and, and, and other opportunities to pray for him. Steve has been battling uh, with uh, some health issues over the last several months, and so I've had the privilege of being able to, to pray over him through some of those health issues. Uh, and then most recently, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, his father passed away, and uh, he uh, had to go to Ohio and bury his father last week or a couple of weeks ago. And came back to finish out his duties. His last day here will be Thursday, uh, and uh, we are sad to see him leave. He does a lot to help us out, including uh, one of my favorite things he does, which is changing the letters on the church sign. Um, the last 10 years, I have been the pastor of a church in which it fell to me about 90% of the time to change the sign. And uh, when I came to the pastor search team, I said, I see you have a sign with letters, but I have one request. I do not change the sign anymore. <laughs> They said, well, we've got Steve. He takes care of that. So I don't know who's going to do it from this point on. Uh, we may be calling you back across the street every <laughs> once in a while to change the sign. But he's been helping us out with that as well. Uh, and so we just wanted to thank you. How long have you been working as custodian? Four and a half years. Four and a half years. I thought it was around four and a half years. He's been helping out David and our, and our building the grounds and, and, and custodial team doing that and, and just doing whatever was, was necessary. And we just want to say thank you for your service. Uh, thank you for being a faithful member of the church, and we're going to continue to, to pray for you and continue to pray for you through this journey forward, and uh, look forward to having you as a, as a church member now and not just as a, as a maintenance guy. So appreciate you very much, Steve. Thank you. So. Also, when you came in this morning, you received a, a worship guide, and in that worship guide, there was a, a little handout or a little insert, which is introducing to you today our announcement that this next Sunday, the personnel team would like to bring a man uh, in view of a call to Central Park Baptist Church as our next pastor to youth and young adults. Uh, his name is Jamie Early. Uh, Jamie is uh, ordained with about eight years worth of student ministry experience. There's a little bio there for you and a picture of him on the screen there. He has a wife named Laura and uh, two children, a daughter named Avery and a son named Ty. Um, we have gone through a process since about the second week of September. Uh, I came in the second week of September. I think the third week of September we had a personnel committee meeting to try to figure out what we were going to do. And God has led us through a lot of conversations and a lot of prayer uh, into a conversation with Jamie about coming to be uh, the next minister of youth and young adults. Uh, Jamie will be coming this weekend. Uh, we will have a, a, a reception in which you as a church can find out a little bit more about him and his family. That will be on Saturday night from 5.30 to 7 in the Outback. We're asking if you come that you bring some finger foods and it will just be a light finger food reception uh, in which you'll have an opportunity to get to know him a little bit better. 
Then next Sunday morning, Jamie will be meeting with our students in the uh, youth Sunday school time. And then during the worship service, we'll share, ask him to share briefly about his call to ministry and some of his vision and philosophy and what he feels like God's called and equipped him to do. At which time, at the end of the service next uh, Sunday, you will have the opportunity as a church family to vote to affirm uh, the call to call him as our next pastor of youth and young adults. And so that's some information about him. If you have any other questions about him or about the process, you're more than welcome to see me or uh, Alan Perry or any of our members of our personnel committee. And we'll be glad to fill you in a little bit more about what we've seen in Jamie. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up this morning to the book of Philippians. We are in week three of a journey through the book of Philippians. Uh, today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Our theme for this 12-week journey is the joy of Christ-centered living. When you study the book of Philippians, there are several key themes that continue to pop out. One is the word joy, which is used over 16 times within the letter. Another is the word gospel, which is used 10 times in the letter. And then the name of Jesus Christ or uh, Jesus or Christ is mentioned about 40 times in the letter. And so it seems very clear that when Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi, the, the key theme that he's trying to communicate to them is that true joy is found in a life that is centered on Jesus Christ and the gospel. Today we're going to be looking at about six verses in chapter 1 in which Paul gives the Philippian church an update on his situation in Rome, that he's in prison. After he was imprisoned in Rome, at some point in time, the Philippians evidently sent one of Paul's friends in the church, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, to Rome to bring a financial gift to support him as well as to check in on him personally. While there, Epaphroditus evidently became very ill and almost died. Paul addresses this, and we'll look at this in a few weeks, in chapter 2, verses 25 through 27. He says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Talking about him, them sending Epaphroditus to him. He's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So Epaphroditus came with a letter and a financial gift from the church, and while in Rome, became very sick and almost died. And the church got word that not only was Paul in prison, but Epaphroditus was sick, and so they were praying for both of them. Epaphroditus recovers, and now Paul sends Epaphroditus back to the church in Philippi with this particular letter that we're reading here. So before we get to Paul's update on his situation in prison, it's good for us to stop for a moment and remember why is Paul in prison to begin with. Since he has to give them an update on what's going on in his, in his, his status, why is Paul in prison? We know that Paul had never gone to Rome on any of his missionary journeys. He did express in his letter to the, to the Roman church his desire one day to visit that church, to encourage them, to share the gospel with them. There was already an established church in that, in that city, and he wanted to visit them and be encouraged by them and actually solicit financial support from them because his, his goal was to eventually go to Spain to preach the gospel. And so we know that Paul intended to go to Rome at one point in time, but he had never visited on any of the three missionary journeys that he took. 
Paul's missionary journeys were cut short in Acts chapter 21. During his third missionary journey, one of the things that Paul did was he went to those churches that he had founded in Macedonia and Asia and Achaia, and he not only went to encourage them and disciple them, but as part of that, he took relief offerings in each of those churches to help support the believers in the church in Jerusalem. After the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, the Bible tells us that many of the followers of Jesus were dispersed because Jerusalem had become a very dangerous place for Christians. Now, the apostles were still there. Many of the apostles were still there. The Jerusalem church still met there, but it became increasingly more difficult and more dangerous to be a follower of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And as part of that, the the believers in Jesus in Jerusalem were being marginalized. They, if they owned a, a shop or they had a, a booth in a marketplace, because some people knew them to be followers of Jesus, they would, not, they would not partake in their shop. They would withhold certain things from them. And so the church began to be in dire need financially. It, the believers in the church were, were struggling to make ends meet, and they had no other option because Jerusalem was where they lived. And so Paul takes this relief offering from these other churches to go back to give a benevolence offering to the church in Jerusalem. Well, in Acts chapter 21, we know that uh, Paul goes to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. Paul was not only a follower of Jesus Christ, but he was a faithful Jew. And so he goes to the temple to worship as a faithful Jew, and while there... Some Jews in Asia who were disturbed by Paul preaching the gospel and planting churches throughout Asia, some of the Jews were there in the temple and they recognized Paul and they stirred up a riot against him. The Roman officials came in to to quell the riot and heard the accusations of these Jewish leaders from Asia who accused Paul of treason and accused him of trying to usurp not only the Jewish religion, but also the Roman government. And so for his protection, the Roman officials put him in prison to await trial. While he was on trial in Jerusalem, he appealed as a Roman citizen to be tried in the court of Caesar in Rome. And so at the end of the book of Acts, he is transferred from Jerusalem to Rome where he is awaiting trial. And this is where we find him when he writes this letter. While many see Paul the prisoner, Paul understands that he is not just a prisoner, he is also a missionary and an ambassador of Christ. As a matter of fact, when Paul refers to himself, he doesn't refer to himself as a prisoner of Rome, he refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ. And that's where we pick up this text today in Philippians chapter 1, is he's been in Rome for several months now, maybe even a little over a year, And the Philippian church is wondering what's going on and how's he doing. So with that in mind, let's read Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, I'm a prisoner for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. 
What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The title of the message today is Only That Christ Is Proclaimed. And as we read this text, before we go into the main points of this sermon this morning, I want you to think about a question today. And the question is simply this. What would you do if you were faithfully obeying God and living out your love for Jesus Christ and suddenly found yourself thrown into an unjust situation not knowing what the outcome would be? What would you do if you were faithfully obeying God, living out your belief and your faith in Jesus Christ, telling others about who Jesus is, and suddenly because of that you found yourself unjustly thrown into a situation not knowing what the final outcome would be? How would you feel if you were in a prison like Paul simply for telling people about Jesus and demonstrating the truth of the gospel? What emotions would you feel if you were in year three of a painful trial just for loving God? For three years you had endured persecution, opposition, accusation, marginalization, all because you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you told people that. Would you begin to be bitter towards other people? Would you begin to be depressed, maybe questioning God's plan? God, why are you allowing this to continue to happen in my life? I'm just trying to be a faithful Christian and yet you're continuing to allow all of this persecution, all of these things to heap upon me. Perhaps you would feel like giving up and never wanting to speak of Jesus again. I could feel that way. If I was just going about my business trying to love Jesus and love God, and all of a sudden for doing that, I was wrongfully accused, thrown into prison, and not knowing what the outcome would be, I could begin to feel depressed. I could begin to question God's plan. We know John the Baptist even questioned Jesus about that when he was in prison. And sent his disciples to say, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? John rightfully had some questions and some doubts. In our own recent times, while we haven't seen quite the level of persecution and opposition in the United States as we have in other areas of the world, we have seen many brothers and sisters who pay a heavy price for being obedient to God and His Word. Recently, a baker by the name of Jack Phillips in Colorado was sued because he refused to bake a cake for a wedding ceremony that he believed violated his religious convictions. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, he said, I cannot in good conscience bake a cake to be an active participant in that kind of a ceremony. It would violate what I understand to be the Word of God and God's plan for my life. And he was sued. And that case is still pending right now. Likewise, a few years before that, a young, uh, an older woman by the name of Baronel Stutzman, who was a florist in the, in the state of Washington, was refused for participating as a florist in a very similar ceremony. Her case went all the way to the Supreme Court. I noticed just a couple of years ago there were three Christian brothers from North Korea. I don't know if you know, but North Korea is the most persecuted, the most dangerous place for followers of Jesus Christ right now. And yet in there, there were three Christian brothers by the name of Kim Dong-chul, Kim Hawk-song, and Kim Sang-duk who were all imprisoned for over three years simply for 
sharing the gospel with people in North Korea. And I think if you and I found ourselves in those kinds of situations, we would probably begin to feel confused, discouraged, questioning whether it was all worth it. And yet here is the Apostle Paul unjustly shackled in a Roman prison to a Roman soldier awaiting trial from a pagan Roman tribunal. And uncertain of what the outcome is going to be. He even says that in the passage we're going to look at next week. And yet what is Paul doing? He's not writing to the church at Philippi asking them to, to write letters to their, to their local Roman congressmen to try to release him. He's not... He's not pleading his innocence to the church in Philippi. He's writing a letter to believers about living the joy of a Christ-centered life. In the midst of a Roman prison awaiting trial and potential execution, what occupies Paul's mind is Jesus and the gospel and the joy of living a Christ-centered life. What could possibly ignite this kind of joy in the midst of dire and difficult circumstances? Well, the only thing that can ignite that kind of joy is the gospel. Because for Paul, it does not matter who the audience is or what the platform is, as long as he gets to tell others about what Christ did for him on the road to Damascus. And we see in this text today one primary takeaway that I want you to, to understand as you leave today, and that is this. When we talk about joy, and we talk about what joy really is, true joy is grounded in the firm conviction that the central purpose of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ is the proclamation of Jesus. If you really want to know where to find joy, not just temporal happiness, not just, yeah, things are going pretty good and I feel good about life and I feel good about Jesus. But if you want to find a joy that transcends your circumstances, a joy that could undergo a serious trial not knowing what the outcome would be, and yet in the midst of all of that, to be able to say, as Paul says in a few verses, to live as Christ and to die as gain, if you want to know how to say that under the midst of difficult circumstances... It comes from the firm conviction and understanding that the central purpose of our lives as believers is the proclamation of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. And so today I want you to see three Christ-centered attitudes that Paul conveys that fuel true joy in our lives. Three attitudes that he says in this, in this text. And the first one is really the central one in which he says simply this, No matter what, the gospel comes first. No matter what, the gospel comes first. Paul talks about his imprisonment, and he talks about not only that, but he talks about the people who are who out of rivalry and out of dissension and out of even trying to, to belittle Paul are talking bad about him and preaching Jesus at the same time. And Paul simply says, verse 18, kind of the theme of the whole passage, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Do you see that the central foundation for Paul's joy was hearing people talk about Jesus? He said, what brings me joy? Hearing that in every way Christ is proclaimed. What brings joy in life? 
for us as believers, it's understanding that the central purpose of our lives is the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And so when, when our neighbors have the opportunity to hear the gospel, when our co-workers have the opportunity to hear the gospel, when our lost family members have the opportunity to hear the gospel, no matter what's going on in our life, the gospel comes first. For the Apostle Paul, it didn't matter whether he was on a riverbank in Philippi, a marketplace in Lystra, a lecture hall in Ephesus, the Oropagus in Athens, or a prison cell in Rome. Every place he found himself was a platform to tell others about Jesus. When Paul experienced his spiritual conversion on the road to Damascus, everything in his life at that moment changed. Because prior to that, he had spent all of his life up to that moment, trying to earn the favor of God through his zealous religious works. He tried to prove to God that he was a righteous man. He tried to prove to God that he was a man who, who believed in him and wanted to follow him. And yet in the midst of doing all that, the very, the very one thing that he was seeking to destroy was the very one thing that was the answer to his lost condition. And when Jesus spoke to him on that day in that road to Damascus and said, Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus. And God showed himself to him through the person of Jesus Christ. On that day, when Paul experienced it, everything in his life changed. Paul demonstrates for us the nature of true conversion and the power of redemption. Because listen carefully. Once you truly understand the power of the gospel... It doesn't just become a religious fact that you accept with your head. It becomes the central truth from God upon which everything else in our lives is measured. Once we truly begin to understand the power of the good news of Jesus Christ, and that as Paul says in Romans 1.16, that it is the gospel and the gospel alone that is the power unto salvation. Once you truly understand the power of this good news... It doesn't just be a, become a religious fact that you hear and accept. It becomes the central truth upon which everything else in your life is measured. So that no matter what, the gospel comes first in your life. When you undergo a cancer diagnosis, you understand that God ordains certain things in His life, in our lives, so that we can demonstrate the gospel to other people. And so you can say, like Paul, no matter what, whether I live or whether I die, the gospel comes first, Jesus comes first. When you undergo a personal trial, maybe you're the one that gets the pink slip this month and you find yourself unemployed, not knowing how you're going to make ends meet, but you're able to stand in that trial and say, you know what, I don't know what's going to happen to us six months from now or a year from now, but I know my God is sovereign and I know that He will provide and I know that Jesus will get me through this and no matter what, the gospel comes first. Paul would never be ashamed of the gospel because he had personally experienced its power for personal transformation. Which begs the question then, what about the rest of us? Why is it that so many Christians live spiritually defeated lives? Why is it that if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that so few of us actually demonstrate that in our words and in our attitudes? I want to ask you this morning, do you know by personal experience the power of salvation and gospel transformation? Have you ever experienced a moment when by faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you, you went from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life? That happened for me when I was about 18 years old. 
And I'd grown up in church all my life, heard Bible stories, went to vacation Bible school, made decisions to raise my hands at certain points in time. But it wasn't until I was around 17 or 18 years old that I really understood what Jesus Christ had done for me. And I received that by faith. And in that moment, I went from a state of spiritual death to a state of eternal life. And if you've never experienced that, then all this talk about the gospel is just religious jargon. Stuff that you might hear with your ears and believe in your head, but you've never trusted it with your soul. What Paul demonstrates for us in the book of Philippians is that there is a parallel relationship between our experience of gospel transformation and our verbal expression of it in gospel proclamation. There is a parallel relationship between knowing personally the power of God for gospel transformation and our verbal expression of it to others through gospel proclamation. Let me ask you an introspective question for a second. Who or what do you spend the majority of your time talking about? You know, sociologists tell us that everybody says basically at least the same number of words. Some of us say more than others. But you have a certain number of words that you talk about during the day. And I know that when you're at work, you have work responsibilities that you have to deal with and you have to talk about. And, and I know that, that you have uh, friends and you have things that you share with one another. But in your free time, who or what do you spend the majority of your time talking about? And have you ever thought about the fact that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to steward the words that you say carefully? Many of us as believers spend a lot of time talking about our favorite sports teams or our favorite TV shows. Nothing wrong with that. But if you are like me, most of the time your social, me your social media feeds are usually filled with affirmations and links to favorite sports articles or responses to the latest binge on Netflix. I hear a lot of believers talk about the dire spiritual condition in our country and the need for us to get right politically in our country. And we talk about the need to elect the right politicians or enact the right laws. I hear a lot of Christians talk about their church and how much they love their church, how creative the preacher is, how much they love their small group, how much they enjoy the music. And those are all great things. I was talking to a friend of mine one day about a experience he was having with some, with some followers from another church, and he said, that church does great things, and I hear all kinds of great things, and every time I meet people that come from that church, they tell me how much they love their church. They tell me how much they love this and how much they love that, and, and over and over again, they talk about the church. He said, but you know what the one thing I never hear from the people in that church? They never talk to me about how much they love Jesus. Got me to thinking. Have you ever thought about the importance of stewarding your words and what you say to people? Because you only have so many words to speak to the people in your life. How many of them do you speak the gospel to? Just as we are called as followers of Jesus Christ to steward our resources for the kingdom, we are also responsible as Christians for stewarding our, stewarding our words and leveraging them for gospel conversations. In her new book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, former atheist Rosaria Butterfield writes about the importance of recapturing the quality of biblical hospitality and using our homes and our limited time margins to demonstrate 
gospel hospitality to the lost people that God has placed in our neighborhoods, our homes, and in our workplaces. By her own conversion, Rosaria came to know the Lord Jesus Christ because as a, as a skeptic who didn't believe in the Bible and didn't believe in Jesus, she sought out a pastor to ask him questions about the Bible. And he didn't just say, come in my office and I'll be glad to meet with you. He said, come into my home and I'll share a meal with you. And over a period of several weeks and months, he demonstrated hospitality that opened her up to the gospel. And the reality is, is that as she says, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes with a house key and it comes with the call to invite people into the rhythms of our lives to demonstrate the gospel to them. And one of the first attitudes that we must develop if we're ever going to find true joy in Christ and if we're ever going to be the church that God has called us to be is the attitude that no matter what, the gospel comes first. But Paul also demonstrates a second attitude for us here and it's important for us to see as well, which is this, that God's mission is more important than my comfort. God's mission is more important than my comfort. Paul says in verses 12 through 14, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me and what happened, he got put in prison. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, not for sedition, but for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is asked by the Philippian Christians to give an update on his present circumstances, and he turns the hardship of his imprisonment into a missions report. This is what happens when the gospel becomes central in your life. When people ask you, how are you doing in your cancer treatments? You don't go, oh man, it's been tough and I've had to do this. You, you say, you know what, it's been tough, but you know what I've discovered? I've discovered that Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient. That His power gets me through it every single day. And He wasn't just giving a, a report on His present physical condition. He said, I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. For Paul, he didn't see the chains and the bars as a hindrance to the gospel. He saw it as another opportunity to share the gospel. We would think from our natural human vantage point that going to prison would keep us from telling others about Jesus. But Paul saw exactly the opposite. And what we are naturally wired in our human perspective to see trials and difficulties as obstacles and hurdles which would hinder us from talking about Jesus, Paul saw them as opportunities. Paul saw his captors not just as the unjust enemy that was imprisoning him, but hundreds of people who had never heard about Jesus. And so every day, Paul had lost Roman soldiers without Christ at his disposal for hours at a time. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what was going on in the Imperial Guard when they said, okay, we got to draw straws because somebody's got to go shackle up next to him. And the next Roman soldier would come in and Paul would say, hey, tell me about yourself. Let me tell you what happened to me one time when I was on the road to a city called Damascus. Let me tell you how God intervened in my life. When the church at Philippi first sent Epaphroditus to Rome, they were likely thinking like you and me, what is Paul going to do now? They probably prayed prayers like, God, why would you allow Paul to be stuck in a prison instead of traveling throughout the country telling others about Jesus? That's the kind of prayers that we pray sometimes. It's really a shame that he's in prison. That really, that really hinders the mission of, of Paul and the gospel. 
They also likely expressed deep concern for Paul's physical condition. Was he being fed properly? Did he have enough clothes to keep him warm? What was his mental state after being locked up in prison for so many years? Surely he's discouraged. And yet, Paul, when he writes to them, the first thing he says is, God is using my prison to advance the gospel. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard that I am here for Jesus Christ. What fuels that kind of positivity and joy? It's the attitude that God's mission is more important than my comfort. God's mission in my life is more important than my comfort. And Paul didn't need a lavish lecture hall and an ornate pulpit to proclaim the gospel. All Paul needed was a captive audience. And so to get practical for a moment, it's becoming increasingly more difficult in the culture in which we live in to live for Jesus. Many of us grew up in the, in the banner of Judeo-Christian Judeo friendly culture. And we grew up in a time where everybody we knew believed in Jesus. Everybody we knew was a member of a church somewhere. Everybody kind of had the same thoughts. Everybody had the same values. But those days are gone. We live in a post-Christian culture. And we live in a post-Christian culture which is marked by the onslaught of religious pluralism coupled with the marginalization of those who are genuine followers of Jesus. And what we are experiencing in our time is that if you really want to live for Jesus Christ, you're going to find yourself increasingly marginalized in your neighborhood, in your workplace, and in the culture at large. And it's made it increasingly more costly to be obedient to the Word of God. And one of the problems is that many of us became fat and comfortable when we lived under the banner of that Judeo-Christian friendly culture. And it was comfortable when everyone you knew believed in Jesus. But I believe that nothing happens outside the sovereignty of God. And I believe that God is using this present post-Christian culture to shake the church out of her comfort zone. And what many of us have been bemoaning for the last 10 years is our last days is quite possibly from God our finest opportunities. And if we are ever going to know the joy of the Christian life that Paul is describing... In the letter to the Philippians, we must come to the point where our joy is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone and not in the favor or acceptance of others. And we must come to the point where we believe the mission of God is more important than our comfort. Because it's going to become where it's become more and more and more uncomfortable to identify with Jesus. What does it say to our brothers and sisters in North Africa? Pakistan, India, Syria, North Korea, and Afghanistan. What does it say to those brothers and sisters who are slaughtered for their religious beliefs when we complain because our lost neighbors don't agree with our religious convictions? What does it say to them when a co-worker rudely declines our invitation to church or criticizes us for being a Jesus freak? And we decide to silence ourselves and say, you know what, I'm just going to go to church and check my religious boxes and keep my faith to myself. What does it say to them? Because when they talk about Jesus, they could be arrested and killed for it. And we must come to the conviction that the mission of God is overwhelmingly more important than our comfort if you and I are ever to engage 
in Christ-centered gospel conversations with the people that He has placed in our lives. It's not going to get easier to share Jesus. It's going to get harder. But God's mission is more important than our comfort. Third and final attitude that Paul displays here, I just simply say it this, God, use this to Christ's glory and not mine. You see this in the way that Paul expresses not only his circumstances in prison, but also about the fact that, that others are talking about Paul and consequently also talking about Jesus. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. While Paul was in prison, not only did the Roman soldiers hear about Jesus, but Paul was getting reports from other churches that because of his imprisonment, other Christians were getting more bold about proclaiming Christ. You see, we tend to think of it the other way. When we see people that are being marginalized or persecuted for their faith, we tend to think that opposition silences the church when in actuality, opposition doesn't silence the church and the gospel that actually empowers it. And when we see bold, costly faith in others, it inspires us to be more bold in our faith as well. At the same time, Paul had his share of critics and distractors in the church. And while Paul was in prison, some people in the church took that as an opportunity to criticize him. The text seems to indicate that these people were probably Christians. They weren't like the Judaizers who were non-Christians. They were probably leaders in the church, but they had become envious of Paul's success in planting churches. And they saw Paul's success as a threat to their own lives and to their own ministries. And so they used the opportunity to say, yeah, Paul's in prison and he's in prison for preaching Jesus. But, and the more they talked about Paul in prison, the more they talked about Jesus. And so Paul said, they can criticize me all they want. As long as they're talking about Jesus, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me whether people are talking about Jesus from sincere motives or whether they're talking about him because they're envious of me and they're bad talking me. Either way, Christ is proclaimed and that's what brings me joy. While they tried to discourage Paul, they also shared the very reason that he was in prison. And so Paul found joy in that, not envy or jealousy. Envy is a difficult and ugly problem in the church today because it's far too easy to begin to think of other churches and other pastors and other ministries as rivals to be competed with instead of brothers and sisters to join arms with. And so we have a tendency to put down other churches because they aren't as deep as us or their music isn't as good as ours, or they aren't growing as fast as ours, or they're not quite as spiritual as ours. And we have a tendency to show the bad parts of ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, I've learned a long time ago that God doesn't call us to ensure that other Christians and other churches are in line with us. God does call us to the ministry of theological and gospel clarity among believers. But if a church in Decatur or a church in Huntsville or Madison or Birmingham is preaching the gospel and just doing it a little differently than Central Park, that's the Holy Spirit's territory, not mine. And so I love Paul's attitude here, which was simply this, whether it's the imprisonment or whether it's the criticism, God used this for God's glory, for Christ's glory and not mine. Whatever situation we may find ourselves in, 
a difficult trial such as the cancer or Parkinson's disease, a difficult neighbor or co-worker who is always opposed to us, a season of personal loss in our lives. Our outlook should always be, God, use whatever's going on right now to glorify Jesus and not me. I go back to what we said at the beginning, and that is that true joy is grounded in the firm conviction that the central purpose of your life and the central purpose of my life is the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The reality is that every day, every day the life that you live outside the walls of this church, the life that you live among your family, among your neighbors, among your co-workers, the life you live proclaims what you believe about Jesus more than the words that you say. And so the question is, when others see you, what gospel do they hear? You know, one of the things that's been part of my journey that I've shared many, many, many times is that I sat on a church pew like many of you in here for, for years and years and years as a young man. And I heard all the truths of the Bible, all the truths of who Jesus was. I, I had many moments in which I, I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit calling me to Himself. And, and I, went through, I went through revivals like some of you did where, where a preacher asked us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you, if you want to give your life to Jesus, you raise your hand. And I raised my hand and, and I said the prayer to myself that the, the guy told me to pray. But in all of those things, I was, I was searching for truth, but I was checking religious boxes. I wasn't really following Jesus. So for some of you here today, that may be your testimony. It may be that, that you know the truth of the gospel, but you've never trusted in its power for salvation. And so when you talk about Jesus, you, you, you believe you have a personal relationship with Him, but you don't know the power of His resurrection, as Paul talks about. Today we want to invite you into an opportunity to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm not trying to sell you a bill of goods and get you to join my church. I don't find any more joy in how many people join my church on a Sunday than I do in, in how many people don't. The main thing for me is to understand that, that every person in here knows that there is a God in heaven who loves you. And he understands you more than you understand yourself. He understands that, that you are a sinner who falls short of his glory. And he sent his son to live a life of perfect righteousness on your behalf to do all the things that you and I can't do. And he sent that same son to die on a cross for the death that you deserve. And three days later, he rose again to conquer sin, death, and the grave. And to become, as we sang a second ago, our living hope. And so my question for you is, is Jesus Christ your living hope today? Because if he's not, we want to give you an opportunity to enter into a relationship with him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I'm going to pray a word of prayer as David and our team come to lead us in our invitation. If today you need to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, if you're tired, sick and tired of being sick and tired, if you're tired of checking boxes but not really knowing Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, and you want to give your heart and life to Him. We want to give you an opportunity to do that today. There's two ways you can do that. One, if you know that Jesus Christ is calling you to, yourself, to Himself right now, in just a moment as we sing, we want to give you the opportunity to come forward and to receive the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to come this morning because you're going through a personal trial and you need some prayer. Maybe you need to come this morning because God's calling you to some other thing. We want to give you an opportunity to respond to that publicly. But maybe... 
Maybe you're not ready to walk in front of some people this morning and say something, but you want to know more about how to know the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior. You can see me, you can see David, you can see Ken after church, and we'll be glad to share with you how you can know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Whatever it is, today is the day of salvation. Do not leave here today without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you belong to Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glory of Christ and God may our true joy in life be found in understanding that our central purpose in life is not the proclamation of ourselves but the proclamation of Jesus Christ. God help us to live that as your followers and God for anyone in here that needs to know you today may you give them courage and the boldness to respond to the gospel this morning and we pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. Would you stand? Respond as the Lord leads you.